Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs and advanced practice nurses with certified financial planner Jeremy Stanley and CRNA Sharon Pierce. Jeremy Stanley has worked with CRNAs for more than 23 years, and Sharon Pierce is a former president of the AANA and the NCANA. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA and advanced practice nurse industries. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Welcome back to Beyond the Mask and part two of our conversation about Dagmar Nelson. In part one of this two-part series, we witnessed the trials and tribulations that shaped Dagmar's early life and career, following her footsteps through the courtroom doors where her exceptional skills and unwavering dedication were put to the ultimate test. How the trial became a turning point, not only for Dagmar, but also the entire profession as it established nurse anesthesia as an indispensable part of healthcare. In part two, we'll go on an exploration to uncover the untold chapters of Dagmar's post-trial years and witness how her victory reshaped the landscape of nurse anesthesia, breaking down barriers and paving the way for countless nurse anesthetists who followed in her footsteps. Join us as we delve into part two of our conversation about Dagmar Nelson. So what happened to Dr. Hunt and Dagmar Nelson after the trial? Well, a few important things that I, I was able to find uh, this noteworthy, I think, in 1934 at the American Hospital Convention. And we have to remember that as we got organized, it was really the American Hospital Association that put us on a strong footing for many, many years after that. They were our best friends. So look at it. The surgeons and the American Hospital Association was really behind the nursing. Well, why? So they had reported at that a comprehensive study of 50 hospitals from 50 to 150 beds. In 1934, it was found that 70% utilized nurse anesthetists with excellent results. The reason given for the other 30% not utilizing nurse anesthetists was the objection made by the medical profession. Hmm. And um, 1934. It was generally known that 5 million paid anesthetics were administered that last year by nurse anesthetists in hospitals in our country. So paid anesthetics, and they were employed by the hospital, right? Yep. So these paid anesthetics went to the hospital, Profit. and they got their salary. So anyway, remember that the what we know now is the ASA was founded in 1935-1936. One year later, they presented a master plan to the American College of Surgeons for the eventual elimination of nurse anesthetists to the American College of Surgeons. And that was just a couple years after they knew 70% of the anesthetics was being given by nurse anesthetists. But anyway, their argument was the custom which allows an unlicensed person to practice medicine, they, they just can't get it, can they? Uh. 
and which necessarily means that any person, regardless of qualifications, oh may engage God. in yeah. the highly yeah. dangerous function of administering anesthetics, cannot be allowed to continue. And now they're called AAs. AAs. Because <laughs> the protection of public health and the protection of the medical profession will be greatly lessened by continuation of our such custom. Anesthesia cannot take its rightful place as a dignified branch of medical practice as long as used as a profit-making part of the hospital mm. service or as an added income of unscrupulous, unethical surgeons. Now wow. they're called GI doctors. <laughs> <laughs> and so now, here's how they were going to do it. Number one, recognition by our state societies and the American Medical Association of the importance of the specialty of anesthesia as a section on anesthesia in state societies and the AMA, which they finally got. The inclusion of a provision in the minimum standards of hospitals in the American College of Surgeons that the Department of Anesthesia of each hospital should be under the supervision of a well-trained physician. Education of the public as to the benefit derived from anesthesia given by competent physician anesthetists. They keep trying that. Better training of students of medicine and interns in anesthesia. But then they said in passing, no legislation should be forced until physician anesthetists can take over the work in a competent way. When's that going to happen? Well, Nancy and I talked five hours uh, of this type of stuff to our students at Wake Forest on on a Wednesday. And, you know, because of the anti-Adriani bill that ASA promulgated that basically was very negative for nurse anesthetists, we had no liaison with the ASA for almost 17 years. And wow. they rescinded that around 1964 because they wanted us to meet with them again. Because they had, again, had some manpower studies that still showed in 1964 most of the anesthesia was being given by nurse anesthetists. So they wanted to get back together. That was uh, when uh, Mary Costello was at, was uh, president and, um, and Mac uh, McQuillan was our executive director. And um, so they, they did come together and they let, let Florence McQuillan write the rules of engagement, and mm. sometimes we'll have to t- we'll talk about that in mm-hmm. the McQuillan when we get to her, because she put it right down. If we're going to meet with you, this is what you've got to do. You got to stop all this anti-nurse anesthetist stuff. You cannot in any way have anything to do with our education of our nurse anesthetists, mm. and on and on she went. So you know, they came back because they still saw that if they eliminate us, who's going to do it? Right. You know. But, right. but today, you know, maybe a little different because there's probably 50,000 of them and 50,000 of us. Yeah, but we, students. we still know that 90% of all rural anesthesia is given That's by right. anesthetists. That's right. So, uh, I mean, actually, those numbers have gone up. So when you said 70%, I thought. Well, that's a little low because mm-hmm. we know it's about 90%. In rural America. In rural yes. America. Yeah. So yeah. it's actually yeah. gone up. But a lot of those hospitals are failing in those institutions as well. So, you know, yeah. you True. wonder if there's not a plot there as well. Uh, well, know, but, so. I mean, on the flip side of that, think about these GI clinics. I mean, I don't know that we're really tracking those kind of numbers or how many anesthetics are given. I've been saying for years we mm-hmm. need to track that like I did. Let's see, I do 20 a day. Some days I'm at one of the clinics three days a week. I'm doing 60 anesthetics mm-hmm. in a week. 
Yeah. Where's that tracked? Yeah. It's not tracked. Right. Yeah. It's not tracked anywhere. Right. Mm, interesting. Could you not? Well, the only place I mean, that it could, goes in is that they feed into GI G- Quick, which is their data. You know, GI docs have been tracking their data for many, many more years than surgeons because of their adenoma detection rates. That's how you quantify what it, the job is that you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. So it is tracked through GI Quick, and I've always said as an association, we need to be matching up with GI mm-hmm. Quick mm-hmm. and getting those numbers. Actually, the foundation needs to be doing that with their mm-hmm. closed claims and all of that kind of stuff. Jeremy, you need to look into that. But we, I don't think we're tracking anywhere how many anesthetics that crnas give in freestanding gi clinics but do we even track office practice because no. there's office practice no. that's different well from think GI about clinics. all the plastic surgery yeah. uh, all the plastic surgery yeah. cases i've ever done where would they be tracked at because that's private you're not billing medicaid right. medicare there are anesthetics all over this country so i still think all the numbers that we have are very, very skewed, skewed on the low yeah. side yes yeah. yeah and that's just sharon pierce's point of view just saying <laughs> okay um well what sandy happened to <laughs> sandy's like okay that's enough of that let's go to the next We'll leave that up to Jeremy and Lorraine at the ANA Foundation to get right on that in your spare time. that's your job. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Jeremy here. Beyond the Mask is sponsoring a team for Halos again this year. Halos is an organization that offered support when Sharon lost her grandchild, Emma, two years ago. Halos is a nonprofit that provides emotional and financial support to bereaved parents who have lost a child from miscarriage through age 20. It's run by parents who have lost a child themselves and want to be there for those parents that need love and support or someone who truly understands what they're going through. The only means of support for Halos is through fundraisers and personal donations. Their largest fundraiser is a walkathon, which will take place on August the 6th. Sharon will be emceeing the event. Please consider joining us and donating by going to the show notes to look for the link or by going to the Beyond the Mask Facebook page. Thank you for your consideration. You can find out more information about the 2023 Halos Walk and donate by clicking on the link in the show notes of today's episode on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. 13th Annual Memorial Walk takes place in New Richmond, Wisconsin on August 5th. So anyway, what happened to Dagmar Nelson uh, after trial and and Dr. Hunt? Um, Well, Nelson continued to work for Dr. Hunt for several years, and he continued to advocate for nurse anesthetists. He spoke at the Mid-South Postgraduate Nurse Anesthetists Assembly in Memphis in February of 1941. He gave a copy of that talk to ANA, and it was published in the ANA Bulletin in November 1941. I have asked twice the ANA people, individuals at ANA, to please go to the archives. I want to see a copy Ah. of that published November 1941 talk that he gave before Nancy and I present this in Charleston in September. So far, I haven't got it, and I'm going to send another request to another person for it today. But anyway, in October 41, in a letter that accompanied her application for membership in what was now the AANA, because remember it changed from Nana to Anna Mm -hmm. in 1939. Nelson apologized to Gertrude Fife, 
for not submitting her application sooner. So she wasn't a member of the ANA in 1931. Well, she was busy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to say the she was going on. And she said that she would be visiting Helen Lamb in St. Louis soon to observe endotracheal anesthesia for thoracic surgery. In 1941, Dagmar Nelson spoke for the California Association of Nurse Anesthetists, and a CRNA attending uh, that meeting that day, uh, uh, Miss Butler, commented. She said Nelson was highly respected. When Dagmar Nelson talked, people stopped and listened to her. Hmm. She stood tall and was well-dressed. Nelson's family said she was always slightly overdressed for any occasion and always wore a dress, never slacks or shorts. I like her already. (laughs) She spoke clearly and confidently at that meeting. The topic was the recent influx of physicians into anesthesia, and Nelson said, and I quote, they don't want to administer anesthesia. They just want to supervise us. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) Mic drop. Yes. So, unfortunately, in 1943, a mentally disturbed (gasps) patient in California walked into the office of Dr. Hunt and fatally shot him before the patient killed himself. Wow. Uh, History says it was a crushing blow to Nelson, who admired the man, loved his children, and as Nancy said, she frequently took them on outings and babysat for him. He was a friend and advocate for almost three decades, for 30 years. She changed work positions to the Los Angeles General Hospital after that and later took a position at Children's Hospital uh, where she worked until her retirement. Illness prompted retirement, and at that time she moved from Los Angeles to San Jose to be closer to a nephew and family. Dagmar Nelson died from acute leukemia, on July 4th, 1958, uh, and it was said by her family she was always a woman in control, and she specifically named the physicians who would care for her in the end. Some waived the fee for service. They probably were afraid not to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, in her last will and testament, she detailed down to specific vases, carpets, and books who should receive each item from her estate. Now, I want to stop at this point and just give a shout-out to one of our colleagues, Ron Van Nest. Um, Ron is a CRNA, uh, and he published two papers on Dagmar Nelson in our journal, June 2006 and August 2006. It was part one and part two, as this podcast is going to be, part one and part two. But... um, but he really knows a lot, and, and I think we ought to uh, give a real shout-out to Ron Van Ness. A little bit about him. He was assistant professor at the Nurse Anesthesia Program at Uniform Services, um, Health Science in Bethesda. He was the editor of the International Student Journal of Nurse Anesthesia, and he, as far as I know, is continuing his research on Dagmar Nelson um, in terms of the medical, nursing, anesthesia, legal, and social history of her era. And he was the one that found some of her family now, uh, her uh, nephew Dan and Bonnie Nelson, who still live in California, I think. And a lot of these things are not in the history books. And so uh, about her as a woman and everything. And Ron uh, 
found that, which was, was very good and a good addition. That was the only picture I could find of Dr. Hunt, too, was in that article. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, but there are some other pictures. Are there? Because, yeah, okay. we're going to have some more at, uh, at Charleston in, in um, September on him. Gotcha. Yeah, because gotcha. we got one of Dagmar Nelson, and she, she looked like a movie star. Yeah, I mean, I she really yeah. does. Yeah, she really does. Yeah, no, she does, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So that was sort of the ending of the hunt. Wow, she really wasn't very old. She died on your birthday, Jamie. I know. Before yeah. I was born, though. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <just> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, what? So she was born in 1892 and died in 1958. Mm-hmm. So she was but what, 65? Yeah. Yeah. Leukemia, wow. though. Yeah, but that's young, especially for some of those anesthetists. They were, mm-hmm. the vapors were good to some of them. Yeah. Not so much to her. We told the students. <laughs> On Wednesday, that a lot of these people live. Goldie Brangham lived be 102, and yeah. uh, many of them live well into the you know 90s, 90s and 100. I said, so there's some to be said for breathing those vapors instead of scavenging them all those years because it, it <laughs> yeah. certainly didn't hurt them. That's right. Yeah. How old was Miss Boss? Uh, she was in her 90s. Yeah. Uh huh. But they, a lot of them also never married. That might be it. Maybe that's the longevity. <laughs> Another study. Another study. Not the gas. Uh, the there you go. We'll ha- I'll well, have Lorraine jump on that one. Look at well. Helen Lamb. What, she was married three or four times? Yeah. Three. Three, three times. times. But she but was she married, married for, for money. money. So yeah. That's a different feel. Yeah. If you marry for well, love, you die one, early. You marry for money, the you last live longer. One that's what the theory is, right? She married him because he was young. Yeah, but she already had the money at that yeah, point. Right. From the second one. <laughs> and he took care of her. He really did. Uh, I mean, he truly well, that's did. why I married younger, you know. So, you know, one day <laughs> my wife will take care of me. That's you know? right. I, I, thought of, years I planned difference. this out. You know, I mean, look, she's beautiful. She's wonderful to be around. She's younger than me, and she makes six figures. And I thought, Lord, you know, she'll still look me, young. I'm all good. <laughs> Of course, right? who was it, Patrick Ballantyne, when he figured out how old you were? I mean, he was like, man, yeah, so good. I've been, uh, it was the gases, the ether. Yeah. <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. All right, so Nancy, so let's kind of talk a little bit about the significance of this today and a little bit about her legacy. Well, she kind of lives with us today because had she lost that that court case, there likely would not be an anesthesia specialty within nursing. Mm. Wow. Um, with defense winning the case on the basis of nurse anesthetist being supervised by a physician, supervision took on a life of its own. And it was argued the medical man was captain of the ship and responsible for everything in the operating room. One of the things, though, about the trial was it was hard to sort out some of the innuendos. Like, were they talking about men or physicians Mm. or about women or nurses? And that, that is like in the 
transcripts and things that you you can get your hands on that it's hard to differentiate sometimes what they really were talking about. But during the presidency of Patrick Downey, the Dagmar Nelson Fund was established, and that was established to provide financial assistance to any CRNAs facing legal action uh, challenging their right to practice anesthesia. Mm. Uh, photos of Dagmar Nelson and Dr. Vern Hunt were hung in the A&A building. I don't know with the new space. They're whether probably they're not. not. I don't even think they're, they're going to hang the past president's mm. pictures they're anymore. There's they're no not. Word. It, it's like Sandy says, the pictures look like it's all glass. I mean, it's a very open concept mm -hmm. building from what I can tell from looking at the video that Drew and Angie Munn did mm -hmm. walk through the building. There's no walls to hang this stuff on. Now, they do have in the reception area a, uh electronic revolving picture thing. And I'm kind of used to that because they have that at school when you yeah. walk in the reception yep. area. It's just one picture after another. And as I understand it, the past president's pictures, probably these pictures and others will be there yeah well you know to me it was interesting to look at the presidents as they're hung in order because you can see the eras if you knew the mm -hmm. presidents and yeah. to me that was pretty instructive but mm -hmm. yeah. yeah with every little progress if you call it progress um we probably lose a little bit along the way yeah and that was one that was one thing well, that's why we're doing the historical series, so we don't yep. we don't lose those things. So, you know, looking forward in the evolution, let's let's talk a little bit about how things have changed and how they've kind of stayed the same. So, you know, we've still been in this supervision battle since 1997. I was kind of a wow. neophyte, but I can remember going to mid-year assembly and the AANA and state associations have been constantly focused on removing this requirement of physician supervision nationally. Um, and is this a problem in regards to the successful outcome of Dagmar Nelson, the trial, um, the only court trial to test the legality of nurse anesthesia, argued that nurse anesthetists worked under the supervision and direction of a surgeon. And, you know, everything evolved. So let's talk about how that's evolved and how we've had to kind of work hard to shirk this um, tag yeah. that we got of physician supervision so ladies okay. your thoughts on that okay well uh jean blooming wright who was attorney for uh the ana for quite a few years published several articles on supervision and captain of the ship doctrine while with the AANA, and the key points that he pointed out in those articles was, in landmark cases, courts have ruled defendant nurse anesthetists were practicing nursing, not medicine. Uh, in the Frank Hatfield, Kentucky case, the court considered that the nurse anesthetist worked closely with the surgeon who held a medical degree and made the diagnosis and determined treatment. The court ruled Hatfield was not engaged in the illegal practice of medicine because she worked under the direction and supervision of the surgeon. And that's, of course, another landmark case that was in 1917. 
And mm. uh, I talked to Peggy McFadden, two-time president of ANA, just this past week. And she and Sandy Tunacek had tried to find some information about Margaret Hatfield. Because this was a life-changing event for the specialists of Dresnestis, that Frank versus Scythe. And they know nothing about her. They can't find anything about her. And we just call it the Frank versus Scythe case. But it was... Um, uh, an earmark case and was used in fact this 1917 case was used in the trial for the defense of Dagmar Nelson Hatfield wonder if yeah. that was the Hatfields and McCoys though wasn't <laughs> that know. in Kentucky <laughs> yeah, yeah it was yeah <laughs> okay so following Frank versus South a number of states adopted statutes recognized the practice of nurse anesthetists typically these statutes followed Frank versus South and provided nurse anesthetists work under the supervision and direction of a physician. The surgeon provided medical component to the care, and the nurse anesthetist provided the anesthesia. But in these statutes, supervision was not defined, hmm. and it was left to the health care providers to work out free of legislative interference. So they didn't move into the operating room and tell you exactly A to Z what this supervision and direction would entail. It was a broad concept. Still mm. plaguing us today. Yep. There you go. Also, after Dagmar Nelson trial, attacks stayed out of the arena of law, out of the legal arena. It, <laughs> they didn't want to go back there, did they? didn't want to go back there, but it didn't stop. So until the 1960s, physician supervision of nurse anesthetists was largely unnoticed. In the 1960s and 1970s, supervision was brought back into the spotlight with a large increase in anesthesiologists. Uh, so anti-CRNA attacks increased in the 1960s and 1970s because there was a tremendous increase in the number of anesthesiologists that began actually after World War II. That trend started after nineteen, yeah. uh, after World War II. And this thing, you know, when you, you look at it, in, in 1934, they were based in this direction of supervision uh, almost totally on the captain of the ship doctrine. You're the master of the ship. You're the master of the operating room. You're responsible for everybody and everything that happens. Well, by the 70s and 80s and uh, during that time, it was really being recognized that this is not right. The captain of the ship needs to go. And Jane Blumenreich said the reasons for that is it was unfair and unsatisfactory legal doctrine from the beginning. You know, these people didn't hire, the surgeons didn't hire these people. Right. They were hired by the hospital and, and others. And so it was not unfair to the surgeon. As medical knowledge grew and specialization increased, it became obvious surgeons were not responsible for all happening in the OR. And the other th argument for the captain of the ship is that the doctrine became unnecessary <laughs> as we moved on. Well, supervision also uh, was alleged as a bias for liability. In June 1985, the ASA president at that time stated that the providing of anesthesia care is legally defined as the practice of medicine in every state of the union. That's what he was aware of. For this reason, it should be noted the operating surgeon or obstetrician who purports to provide medical direction of the nurse 
and the absence of an anesthesiologist carries a high risk of exposure on a variety of legal theories for the acts of the nurse. Mr. Bloomwright further stated the same legal principles that govern liability for surgeons directing nurses uh, is uh, the same for a physician and has nothing to do with supervision. This issue is whether the surgeon controlled the procedure which led to the injury. In other words, what he's saying is the surgeon is not liable for what the nurse anesthetist is doing unless he takes control right. of what she's doing, he, she, he or she is doing, by telling her what she needs to be giving and what she needs to be How doing. The, or the he patient. positions the patient and it's mm -hmm. a peripheral nerve injury. Yeah. And the same for physicians. Sure. It's not just nurse anesthetists, it's the same for physicians. Mm -hmm. They're not liable for the actions of a physician anesthetist or a nurse anesthetist mm -hmm. unless the surgeon controls yeah. what led to the negligent act. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. And then uh, Jane made it very clear, and, and I think we've come this far, and I agree with Jane Blumenreich wholeheartedly. It's time now just to close this chapter. And what Jane said, if enemies of nurse anesthetists are going to continue to intimidate surgeons by misuse of this statutory requirement, the only solution is to get rid of it. And we know it has been and will continue uh, to be a, a field uh, where we work in close cooperation and in collaboration uh, with everybody on the team, mm -hmm. not just the anesthesia team. We're not the only ship in the in the room, but we work together good with or without requirement for supervision. It's not independence. It's collaboration, yeah. cooperation, yeah. and so it's time then to just move on. And uh, I know North Carolina, the SAVE Act has been introduced again. It came very close to passing uh, this last legislative session. In addition to bipartisan support, there are payers of anesthesia services uh, that have si had signed on last time. And I, I think it'll have a life of its own, and it will eventually be passed. It will have to be. Because we can't have Medicaid expansion no. and continue to support rural America and other places. Unless well, this is an evolution of the specialty. We can't be rooted in 1917 with the Hatfields. Sam, that's can't. not what it's rooted in. I, I it's know. not what it's rooted in. We know what, what it's rooted in. It's question? about just follow the dollars. I, I mean, that, they, you know, I mean, I sit here very objectively a lot of times and look at this and say. You know, all this boils down to is the money. Where's the money being made? Where's the money going to? And if you track that money trail, you see what the real reasoning for all this is. And you know, I often tell clients, and I tell people, you know, I, I don't, I don't fault the anesthesiologist at all for battling for what they feel is right and and securing their income. I, I don't fault them. Um, you know, but I don't fault nurse anesthetists for battling back when someone is infringing upon their earning ability as right. well, which is what's happening. So, you know, the way I explain it is if you went to medical school and you came out with $400,000 in debt and you're an anesthesiologist and you were to walk in one day and they say, we don't need you anymore. This nurse anesthetist is going to give the anesthetic and we don't need you here. 
um, how would you feel? Right. Same thing. Um, so to to your point, Sandy, I, I think the idea here is how do you collaborate together? Because if you could just come together on this, there's enough money for everybody out there. Yeah, and it's enough work. We know enough, enough work. work. Absolutely. I mean, there's unlimited work now that that can't be handled by one group or the other. And if you could work together and figure this thing out to move forward, the patient wins. CRNAs win, physician anesthesiologists win. It's a win-win, but there's certain groups that can't see past that money grab that's going on, and that, that's and control. the sad part. And control. Yeah, it's yeah, about, that's true. It's about money and control. Yeah. And um, you know, Aragon said so many times, the late Aragon, um, we're both better because we both exist. Oh, and I she like was that. talking about physician anesthetists and, and nurse anesthetists. And even some of our battles have just made us stronger. Absolutely. And I have some friends that are married to anesthesiologists, and um, sometimes I'll talk to them, and they're almost apologetic with some of our, mm. uh, our uh, legislative maneuvers in our states yeah. <laughs> about their husband. <laughs> and I said, don't think about it. That person's doing their job. Right. Just like I'm doing my job. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, it's like I say all the time. Uh, I'm not anti-anesthesiologist. I'm just no. pro-CRNA. I mean, right. I work at a facility now that I work with anesthesiologists, and I love working there. We get along great. Right. Uh, everybody respects everybody. And, you know, patients should know that this never hits the bedside. Sharon, and that's the way it let is. Let me tell you one thing. This just reminds me of this. Democrats and Republicans would get along if it wasn't for politicians. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. Well, yeah. the doctor that I work with that I absolutely adore on Mondays and Tuesdays, he's a Democrat. I'm a Republican. We have discussions, and he's like, I can't get over how many Republicans I just love, and I don't know the Republicans. I said, well, right. it's because you really are one. Because there's nobody know. inflaming <laughs> that situation. The there's always somebody inflaming the situation that, right. in this and in politics. You're right. And that is what's pushing all this agenda forward. Yeah. So. And uh, Nancy and I tell the students, because if you look at our whole history, uh, it has been just a tug of war between the physician specialists and the nurse anesthesia specialists. But we tell the students, we are not anti-anesthesiologists. Yeah. We have, Absolutely. all of us That's have many good CRNA. friends yeah. that are anesthesiologists. But we are protective, as you say, Sharon, for our own a slate for yeah. our own well, profession. what we could be. achieve <laughs> if we would work together but the the line that is hanging everybody up is anesthesia is the practice of medicine and if they would just say anesthesia is the practice of medicine and nursing oh don't hold your breath i know you right. long enough no, i won't live that long but you know millennials and i still have hope you know, I love millennials, but millennials are much more inclusive of everybody. Both and, physicians and, and nurses. Exactly, because I recognize that some of the physicians that I work with now, they probably are millennials. They don't yeah. look old enough to be. 
anything else. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, and they are they are all inclusive, and they are not as competitive. I guess we just had a podcast that released on emotional intelligence, intelligence. EI. Yeah. Yeah. I get it confused. Tom Carol Davis did that, didn't he? Yes, and he talks about yeah. that how the millennials are very, very inclusive. So if, as time goes on, one could hope that the president of the ASA will be a millennial eventually. Well, Sharon, I'll tell you, this this eventually, and you said it, Sandy, it will end. Yes. It will end. And, And the end is going to be the continuation of healthcare dollars mm-hmm. shrinking and who is going to be the best lowest cost provider and as the government which which I always say this as well 20% of our gdp plus is spent on healthcare dollars as the government has to start dealing with this at some point and they will eventually um that's when we start to see this issue change because you and I both know that you do not need a physician anesthesiologist in every anesthetic that is given. You do not need them there. Maybe you need them there in ASA 4s and ASA 5s, oh. but one, two, threes. most of the time, CRNAs could handle that. And why are you paying someone to supervise someone when they don't need to be there supervising? That eventually will come down to money and numbers, and that's – that's when I see things changing. Well, going back to the evolution, think about it. Blood pressures, physicians used to get paid to take a blood pressure. Nurses were not allowed to at yeah, the turn that's of, true. you know, the 1900s. They didn't do it with Dagmar Nelson in the operating room as an anesthetist <laughs> in the <laughs> late 20s and early 30s, you know? Yeah. But yeah. whenever they stopped getting paid for it, guess what? Then the nurses were smart enough to take a blood pressure. You know what I've always said? If it's what you get paid for... I said, and you got paid for putting in Foley's and not doing hernias. The nurses will be doing hernia, hernia repairs, and the doctors will be putting in Foley's. There you go. That's <laughs> right. That's right. I'm serving yeah. on a commission now yeah. the, on nurse reimbursement. That's another conversation that will be coming up. Very, the other thing, in closing with this, you know, I've always said we are the solution to the problem. Yes, we Because are. quality, cost, and access. Absolutely. But I heard someone at the uh, te- at the meeting in Austin at a breakout that Nancy and I attended. He said, we, might as- we need to quit talking about quality. He said, because the outcome studies show there's no difference right. between the two. What we need to replace that with is efficiency. Mm-hmm. And I believe we are looking more as an mm, organization into mm. efficiency models for anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that... Uh, I really paid attention to that because I thought he made a very good point. Yeah. I like it. Well, Sharon, I think it's a wrap. I think so. Sandy, Nancy, thank you guys. As always, always, Mm -hmm. do a wonderful job bringing this amazing information to our listeners who probably wouldn't get it anywhere else. No, they wouldn't get it anywhere else because I don't think anybody's going to pull up the AANA journal and read Ronald Van Nist's article, except for... (laughs) Randy Cornelius. Yeah, Randy. Me. Randy would. Do it. And, and, Sandy. and Sandy. I did. I thought they were. Very I read good. them. Oh, well, good. that's why y'all are here talking 2006, about. Two thousand and six. He did two of them. Well, yeah, yeah. Those, they're really, really good articles. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, thank you both for all you do and have done for nurse anesthesia and 
and nurses in general and all you continue to do and give back you know you guys were there in austin at the the meeting down there and you're attending other meetings and you, how long have you been in nurse anesthesia? Say we that. don't talk about Over it. 50 years Over apiece. Over 50 years apiece. I mean, no. it, it's 100 years combined right here of giving and giving back to the nurse anesthesia community, and you're still doing it. Yeah, and I just that think the association's only been in effect for 90 years. We've got 100 years, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the and they, they'd only, you would never know it by looking at them. No, they sure. would, uh, so would not. The, the gases were good to them, too. Yes, so, they were. Yeah. So. Speaking of that, I asked, I was young and dumb, okay? But I asked Helen Voss if she had not, if she knew Agatha Hodgins. <gasps> Okay, how'd that go over? It didn't go over because she didn't. She was already dead before <laughs> Helen was born. Oh my god! <laughs> oh well, open foot. Yeah, I mean, open mouth and cert foot. Yeah, right? there you go. So, all right, well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to help us grow, Sharon, how can they help us? Well, the best way to help us to grow is to leave us a review, but make it positive as we all know there's enough negativity in this world for sure and we do occasionally i just want to address this a little bit we do occasionally get some negative negative reviews reviews. and and a lot of times it's crnas giving a a negative Mm -hmm. review when we do get one which is interesting i mean everybody has their opinions and we do appreciate that yeah we just Um, want positive reviews send send the negative comments to my email address not mine send them to jeremy's yeah (laughs) you know i guess if you've got something negative review contact sharon not me okay what is it it. your mama used to say you say good things in public and bad things in private that's right that's right so uh, but yes leave us a positive review you know sharon we take constructive criticism Absolutely, absolutely. But we don't want nurse anesthetists making other nurse anesthetists look bad in public. Yeah. You know, so anyway, so Sharon, we're in the top 50 medical podcasts. Where are we going to? Number one. As we are in the CRNA community. We're the number one podcast in the CRNA community, continuing to grow every single week. It's amazing. And we're excited about it. And yeah. And a great job that we're doing on the clinical side with Jeremy and Sass. And, yeah. Thank you um, to our listeners. We would be nothing and nowhere without them absolutely until next time it's a wrap beyond the mask is made possible by the team at crna financial planning with almost two decades of experience the firm guides crnas through the complexities of investing and financial planning schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support.
Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.